Hello, everybody. For some of you, I'm Ian. Uh, I'm a minister in Telford. Uh, for a lot of you, uh, I'm back home. And uh, I, I face a whole bunch of dear brothers and sisters and friends who have supported me and our family as I was called into this ludicrous world of Baptist ministry. And uh, four years down in Bristol, um, and so far, two years in Telford. And, and I'm back. You're mad and daft enough to invite me to um, bring God's word, which I am just so thrilled and delighted to do, even if you are giving me Exodus 18. But <laughs> let's turn to it and, and have a read. Uh, page 72 in the Bibles you have there. Exodus chapter 18, Jethro visits Moses. Now, Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things that the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hands of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for all the people? Why do you sit alone and judge while all these people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses answered him, because the people who come to me to seek God's will, whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. 
The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times. But let them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. And that will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Amen. So let's try and work out what all this is about. Poor old Moses. His senior management role in Israelite logistics is certainly now taking its toll. It feels a lot more than just four chapters ago when he was the hero of the hour, the could-do-no-wrong liberator who had taken the half-a-million-strong workforce out of their oppressive slavery in Egypt. Fortunately, he didn't let the success go to his head. He recognised that it was all a work of God. It was all under God's control. Moses had his eyes and his trust fixed upon God. And this is just as well, because the tide of public opinion has now shifted massively. Indeed, since that glorious Passover celebration and escape across the Red Sea, Moses, it appears, has been lurching from crisis to crisis. We've got no water, Moses. Call yourself a man of God. Well, well done. You've taken us from okay employment in Egypt to now to be left to die of thirst in the desert. Moses has faith. He knows what God has tasked him to do. He knows God can be trusted. He has seen God work miracles before. He leads them to a water supply. Next chapter. We've got no food, Moses. Call yourself a great man of God. Well done. You've taken us from a place where we always were given rations of food in Egypt to now be left to die of hunger in the desert. Moses has faith. He knows what God has tasked him to do. He knows God can be trusted. He has seen God's miracles before. Manna and quail are provided for the people of Israel. Next chapter. 
Moses, guess what? We've got no water again. And now there's a big bunch of hairy, scary Amalekites who are coming over the hill and and we're all going to die. And that's the children of Israel for you. Having experienced the plagues, they've experienced the pillar of fire, the opening of the Red Sea, manna coming from heaven. The people of Israel still do not trust God. They are showing a hardness of heart towards God that has only been seen, well, with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. In fact, that is precisely the point that the psalmist makes and the conclusion he reaches when he pens Psalm 96, which I might just have a quick read for you when I find it. Psalm 96. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. We heard the words at the beginning of the service. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. God is the one who deserves the glory. And as you read on through you discover that actually it's because the people have turned against God and forgotten to trust him that things have started to go pear-shaped. Back to chapter 18. Moses, for weeks now, has been shouldering massive responsibility. The responsibility for the lives and the welfare of half a million displaced people. And it must have weighed very heavily on his shoulders. For Moses, there would be no humanitarian aid drops, no United Nations relief packages. His trust was focused on God alone. So what does God do? Does he send a massive emergency aid package to relieve the pressure put on Moses? Well, kind of. He sends him his father-in-law. Jethro, you might remember, was the man who had given Moses, who at the time was the Egyptian prince, being hunted. He gives him asylum. He didn't have to do it. Jethro could have had Moses thrown out or incarcerated as a potential spy. Midian had to look after its own national security too. But the way in which Moses had acted, the way he had protected and helped his daughters, it enabled Jethro to come to the conclusion that this Moses was a good man. This was a man after God's heart. And so in chapter 18, Jethro appears again. He arrives at the camp. We have no information on how he got wind of Moses' whereabouts, although I'm sure even in those days, word soon gets around of momentous events happening in other countries. And Jethro is certainly just the tonic that a very weary Moses needs. I don't know, you see it a bit on Strictly Come Dancing. No, seriously, uh, sort of a 
All right, might not be the world's greatest illustration, but you get some obscure newsreader or somebody that's been training her little heart out every day for three months and knows that they'll be forced to wear something particularly horrific for week 12. And then unexpectedly, husband and two excitable five-year-olds come into the training studio and suddenly there is renewed energy and determination to go on. Family is just what Moses needs at this moment. So Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law, bows low and kisses him. They greet each other and they go into the tent. Here at last is an opportunity for Moses to offload everything to a third party. To a third party that he's not directly responsible for. And it all comes tumbling out. The amazing high points, the times when he has feared for his life, both as he faced Pharaoh and more recently as he's faced the anger of his own people whose faith had failed them. Jethro heard it all. Just telling his story. Just telling Jethro exactly what had happened and what he experienced was quite sufficient to bring Jethro to faith himself. Verse 11, he confesses his conversion. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Fantastic. And so it was a day of great rejoicing, getting reacquainted with his family. A great, happy, fun meal spent in the presence of God. Surely this day was turning out to be one of the very best days in the whole of Moses' life. And just as ever, with great and wonderful celebrations, fantastic weekends, very soon afterwards, something inevitable happens. Monday morning comes along. I wonder if you've ever wondered just how the world existed before the advent of the email inbox. Well, chapter 18 of Exodus gives us some insight. It's not just disembodied letters and emails that are surrounding Moses. It's the people themselves. And real people, well, they're a little bit more difficult to file There's no escape for Moses. There's no escape for the national celebrity, the hero, the man of God who has rescued his people and now, in effect, has become president. Moses, the great Moses, with his administrative skills learned in Egypt, developed in Midian, and now honed in godly wisdom by Yahweh himself. He's perceived as the only person who has the authority and the wisdom to administer justice amongst the nation. And it takes a new pair of eyes from completely outside the situation to see just how ridiculous it was all becoming. Moses was so used to and so busy being the man that he had not really had chance to see just how stressed out and snowed under with the responsibility he had become. Perhaps it just takes someone from outside to recognize the need for change, the need to change a leadership structure, the need to change and the way to change a company, 
a group of people, something to make the whole thing work more effectively. And of course, in this case, it's God's people. So let's look carefully at what Jethro suggests, because in many ways, this is the first recorded attempt at discipleship training. We know that Moses has had amazing encounters with God in the past. What we can now infer as we read this chapter is that Moses had spent a lot of time in prayer and intercession for his people. And at the same time, God has revealed to Moses a great deal about his will and his purposes for Moses, and also his will and his purposes for the whole of the nation of Israel. Moses has come to understand something more of the promise that God made with Abraham in seeking to establish a nation, a nation that would be set apart from the others, a nation where the rule of justice and righteousness would be a benchmark which would eventually lead other nations to copy so that the peace and the blessing would come to the whole earth. This is God's big plan. And it's certainly a better one than destroying the whole world with a great flood, which didn't seem to work out too well. So all these laws and all these principles and these precepts that Moses has learned from his time spent with the Lord, they need to be taught to the people. So that then the people in their turn could apply them and administer justice. And in so doing, demonstrate God's love and God's power to each other. Now, in the coming chapters and books, even, in the Bible, these laws and principles are spelled out, literally chapter and verse. But for now, Jethro sets a rather ambitious but nevertheless quite sensible plan to put a structure in place to take the pressure off the shoulders of Moses. Spread the responsibility through a structure which would cover the nation. So, Who is eligible to be part of this structure? Who is eligible to become a judge, a leader within the nation belonging to God? What are the qualifications required to take a position of leadership, of responsibility in the gathering of God's people? Or as we would call it, the church. Well, Jethro picks up three criteria, and what I want to do is briefly look at the criteria and see if they are right. In other words, see if they are reflected elsewhere in scripture. I mean, Jethro's only just come to faith 24 hours ago. He might not have got it completely right. Are the things that Jethro suggests absolutely right? Well, let's have a look at them. First criteria, Jethro says, is you need to be a good leader. According to Jethro, the first thing to be a good leader is you need to be capable. Is that right? Do you need to be a capable person? Well, yes. And no. Take Moses, for instance. Was he capable? But he never thought so at the beginning. Remember his argument at the burning bush. You don't want me. 
You, you don't. You don't. You don't. Uh, you don't want me. I am not eloquent at speaking. No one ever listens to me. I, I've killed somebody, so I'm a bad person. I'm not the right man for the job. Won't you please just send somebody else? It's not the world's most promising start, is it, really? But Moses is not alone. Take Gideon, a man full of fear, found hiding in a hole in the ground, ineptly trying to thresh some wheat, and his task to become the mighty warrior to overthrow the Midianites. Was he capable? Or David, every other son of Jesse comes in front of Samuel. Jesse doesn't even bother to get him out of the field of sheep because he's so young, he's so inexperienced. Is he capable? Or money-loving Matthew in the New Testament, or headstrong Peter, or church-persecuting Paul. Capable people to lead? You betcha. Second criteria to be a good leader, according to Jethro. Someone who fears God. How interesting. Isn't it not only just last night that in his conversation with Moses, Jethro becomes convinced and convicted of the lordship of Israel's God? And suddenly, today, it is a genuine respect and genuine relationship with God which becomes a major criteria of becoming a good leader. Has Jethro got this bit right? Well, I think the answer is yes, and absolutely definitely yes. If you look through scripture, it is the relationship with God which is always the preeminent requirement for leadership amongst the people of God. A few examples. Deuteronomy 34. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with a spirit of wisdom. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded him. Judges 3.10, the spirit of the Lord came on Othniel and he became Israel's judge. Judges 6.34, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. Judges 11.29, the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Judges 14.6, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. 1 Samuel 10, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. 1 Samuel 16, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. A slightly more disturbing 1 Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. 2 Chronicles 24. The spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah, the priest. And if I rattle on a lot more, we discover that the spirit of the Lord just about comes on each of the prophets as they are mentioned through the Bible. Into the New Testament, Jesus goes and quotes uh, 
Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight from the blind, to set the oppressed free. Moving on in the Bible to Acts 6. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of what? The spirit of wisdom. And we'll turn this responsibility of leadership over to them. And we'll give our attention as apostles to prayer and the ministry of the word. Everywhere in scripture, it is evidence that a person is filled with the spirit of God, which gives them a mandate to lead. It's not their background. It's not their CV. It's not their qualifications. Although sometimes these can act as indicators and pointers. The key to appointing leaders is this question. Is the Spirit of God acting within them? Are they in tune with God? Is God everything to them? Does God mean everything to them? And that is the big question. That is what being filled with the Spirit of God is all about. And you might well ask, well, I don't know, how can we tell that the Spirit of the Lord is on them? Well, I guess the answer to that question is, have a look at them. Have a look at their character and how it's developing. Because we know, don't we, that a person filled with the Spirit will have the following characteristics. They will become increasingly patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle, and self-controlled. They will be people of peace, of joy. Oh, how we'd like some people of joy to be our leaders. People of love. Their agenda will be to bring good news to the poor, to set people free from oppression, a desire to open the eyes of others to the power and the reality of the gospel. Those are the criteria that you need to have for people who are leading, people making judgments. Those, undoubtedly, will be the criteria that you'll be looking for in a new pastor. But also, these are the qualities that we all need to be developing and nurturing in our lives. Because we all want to grow, don't we, as effective disciples, And we get loads of chances. We just have to be aware of them. We need to be aware of the opportunities to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and work in us as we talk to friends at school. As we help with the children's work. As we deal with our employees. As we parent our children. As we serve tea and coffee after the service. Always there are opportunities to grow in God's Spirit. And if we don't allow God's spirit to fill our lives, well, frankly, we miss out. We might not feel very capable in our own eyes or in the world's eyes. But God sees the heart. He sees the hearts of the Gideons and the Davids and the Moseses and the Peters. What we need to do is have the opportunities to discover, 
to use the gifts that we have within the church. And leaders, well, they've got the job of being able to spot and harness and develop and encourage faithful discipleship. As Moses was learning, the responsibilities of leadership need to be shared. Or else some people are going to get burned out and other people are going to feel disempowered. And it's not easy to let go. Even if you're Moses. Three of criteria. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. Is this important? Oh gosh, it is. Biblical leadership, and the more I look at it, the more I understand this. Biblical leadership is transparent leadership. One of the really interesting things and the really surprising things as you read through the Bible is the leaders and the kings that you come across. They are disarmingly honest about their flaws and their weaknesses and their sinfulness, aren't they? Elijah in his depression, David and Samson and their weakness for women, Peter, who will disown Jesus. All these flaws God can deal with. It's the heart of our faith, the very heart of our Lord's Prayer, the prayer that he taught us, is about Giving, forgiving others and allowing God to forgive us. But if we don't have that transparency, if we put a wall, a barrier of, of deception up, then we're in dead trouble. Deception is the problem of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 6, in Acts 5 even. It just cannot be accepted and tolerated in leaders in the church. Being truthful leads us incredibly vulnerable and often needing forgiveness. But that actually, I think, is part of the task and certainly part of the task in leadership. So I guess we just have to work out what our motivation is. Because a motivation to lead must always be a motivation to serve rather than a desire for power. Otherwise, it will always end in disaster. Honestly, I promise you, it always will. There is only one safe place for the power to reside. And where's that? In Jesus. Only he managed to relinquish all the power and glory of heaven to die naked on a cross. Only he has proved himself as a safe place for power to reside. To him and to no one else belongs the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. To the leaders here, may God equip you for the tasks he has given you. May you ensure that the spirit of God is living and growing within you. And may you find Jethro's in your life who you can be accountable to and you can be completely honest with. 
May they help you see beyond the present circumstances, give you a bigger and clearer picture of the vision that you are being called to. And to you who are not yet leaders, may you desire more of God's spirit within you. May you be eager to learn the principles and the practices that underpin your faith. And may you all desire more than anything else to grow together in the unity and the love of Jesus. So that you can become, in the very truest sense, Lim Baptist Church. Faithful citizens of the kingdom and a blessing to all the nations. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story in Exodus 18. We thank you for Jethro. We thank you for Moses' willingness to listen. We thank you that you can work through all kinds of people, the ones we expect and the ones who come completely out of our context and completely from off the radar and into our lives. Lord, may we not be prejudging of who has come to bless us and through whom you may give us and bring us words of wisdom. Lord, keep us from arrogance. Keep us from feeling superior, for thinking that we know it all. But let us stay humble and let us stay always grateful for the love and the mercy that you have lavished upon us. And Lord, may we always meet one another and meet you with a spirit of humility, but also with a spirit of recognition that you are the God who will provide your people with manna in the desert, with a way through the Red Sea, with hope and with a future. Amen.